that art on the out has that ability to bring art to a street level and in that way it gives exposure to artists to whole new demographics of people not people that are going out of their way to look for art to purchase art but more people that are going about their daily routine and the art ends up becoming part of the fabric of their daily routine and at, at some point they need it to be part of their routine forever right so that's i think how a lot of those sales happened was not because it was people that were art collectors that were looking for art it was people that the art really spoke to them this week we welcome mother and daughter team barbara anderson and jackie graham founders of art in the avenue a new york-based social impact initiative that spotlights the work of underrepresented artists and turns storefronts into exhibition spaces and streets into open-air galleries. In the first part of this interview, we asked Barbara about her daughter Jackie as a child and explored with Jackie the impact of her mother and father on her life, work ethic and career direction in art. Jackie discusses her international upbringing and its influence on her sense of self and feeling of being a global citizen. We discuss how Jackie's character and organisational skills were evident at an early age and how curiosity was cultivated. Jackie discusses education and her focus on art business and how a serendipitous summer internship opened her eyes to the value of accessibility to the arts and how that ultimately prepared her for the work she and her mother, Barbara, are doing with Art on the Avenue. We talk about the role of art in teaching children about socio-cultural moments in history. We then dive deep into their work with Art on the Avenue, launching it as a response to the pandemic, the shuttered stores, the barren windows and the deserted neighbourhoods of New York's Upper West Side, with their aim of supporting local artists and bringing life back to the streets. They discuss their first exhibit on New York's Columbus Avenue and their second exhibition that launches this week in the West Village and runs through the end of May. Barbara and Jackie with Art on the Avenue are reimagining the role of art in communities, its impact on what a neighbourhood is, and creating new commercial opportunities for artists. If you want to learn more, we've added the links to Art on the Avenue in the show notes. But for now, be engaged, be entertained, and be educated by the marvellous mother and daughter team of Barbara Anderson and Jackie Graham. Jackie, Barbara, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having us. Hey, Mark. Nice to be here. Yeah, very, very kind of you to make the time on this Friday afternoon. So I really appreciate it. All right. So Barbara, Jackie, this is a, a novel experience again. Well, I, I, last week's interview, I had my first two uh, guests on that are podcast hosts. And today I've got my first mother and daughter interview, which is unusual. So before we get started with talking, before we get into talking about the amazing work you're doing together as Art in the Avenue, being mother and daughter, it's an unusual um, place for me to start to ask Jackie what it was like her upbringing and the impact of her parental support on direction she's gone in life. I think given your Jackie, your mother's here, I think we should start with her and ask her what it was like being the mother to young Jackie and, and what it was like as a mother bringing up uh, a young child in New York, I believe. So this is a very interesting and easy one for me, Mark, because Jackie was a terrible baby. She actually made me question, and I'd always wanted to be a mother, but she really made me question whether all those years of wanting were, you know, just a mis mistake. Honestly, I doubted whether I was a good mother. And then she turned two 
and everything changed actually that's when everybody they they talk about the terrible twos but when jackie turned to things changed and it was as if you know i'm done with that i've done all the crying and now i'm just going to get on with it and she's been getting on with it ever since so actually from the age of two it was it was a pleasure it was an honor it was fun i can count on one hand the times in jackie's life where she's been difficult for me on one hand and i hear other mothers and and i know that that's not normal that's not the situation but that's been my situation she's a very logical and even keeled person and you know what you can always reason with jackie and so yeah it's been wonderful okay well, Jackie, maybe you could tell us about your recollection of the parental support, particularly your mother and, and your father, obviously, on the guidance and direction they gave you and how that's affected the journey you've gone on in life from to arriving in education, but going, getting involved in the art world as well. Definitely. Well, my parents are the two biggest influences in my life. I, I mean, for everybody, they wouldn't be where they are without their parents, but me very much as far as my career goes. Funnily enough, my dad is the one that influenced me to to pursue something in art management. And then my mom's been a teacher my whole life and that always inspired me and her work ethic especially inspired me. I don't think she took a day off ever when I was growing up. And that's instilled that same kind of probably a little bit ridiculous idea that, you know, you always have to, you, you should always be working towards something and being um, productive and, and trying to, to do something good as well, which is why I'm at work right now. I've gotten nothing but support from my parents my whole life. Uh, and I take it you grew up in New York. We grew up kind of all over the place. I never lived anywhere longer than four years. And my mom grew up in the same way. She moved around her whole life. And I, I was born in Montreal. And then my family lived in New York, Switzerland, London, and then back to New York, back to Switzerland, back to London. And then I split off and went back to Canada for university. So we've grown up having to be very adaptable our whole lives. That's interesting. So and a very, with a very cosmopolitan worldview. So what, what is your sense of identity? Are you, do you feel a global citizen or do you have a sense of being Canadian or... That's the hardest question when people meet us and they say, well, where are you from? It changes depending on where I am. When I'm in Canada, I feel a pull towards Europe and towards New York. When I'm in, when I was in New York, I was working there for a little bit and I desperately needed to get back to Montreal. When I was growing up in Europe, I always wanted to be back in New York. So I love all of the places that I grew up and I think that they've all really influenced who I am, but I do consider myself a bit of a, a global citizen. And I think it's really, it's, it's only been beneficial to me my whole life. It's been, it's helped me have an understanding of lots of different perspectives and, and yeah, and I think mom, you'd say the same. Yeah, it's interesting to hear my daughter say it because I've always felt a little bit guilty, to be honest with you, because I grew up very much like that, living in different places, never quite knowing how to answer the question. But the one thing that I could say was that both my parents were born and brought up in Italy. And so I did have that, you know, I am Italian, even though I've grown, I've lived in Peru and I've lived in Kenya and I've lived in, in, in Canada and all these other places, but I did. I inside I do feel very much Italian and I've always felt a little bit guilty that my kids don't have that 
either because I'm Italian, a little bit removed, and my husband's Canadian. And they grew up, you know, very much attached to the places that they lived in while they were there. But then my, I always felt like my job as a mom was to recreate their worlds wherever we landed. And so they again dove in and became very attached to their new place. So it's nice to hear. I hope that they feel like they're global citizens because that's what I would want. And, and that's what I feel. When people say, where are you from? It's always that awkward hesitation. And I think most expat kids will relate to that. It's that moment where, okay, what, what's my fast answer right now? How much do they really want to know? And so you'd make your, your decision. It's a snap decision right then. If you want the quick one, I'll tell you, okay, I'm, I'm Canadian because that's what they wanted to hear. But it's, it's an interesting little game that you play, I think, as an expat. So let me respond to that because I grew up with a mother, well, father that was in the forces and commercial airlines and moved around a lot between England, Scotland, and also he lived for a, they lived for a period in Iran and I was at boarding school. So I think I had about seven schools. So I really do identify with, with what you're both saying. And I think the interesting, aside from identity, you know, that, that classical aphorism, wherever I lay my hat is my home, is I think just a, is a natural part of growing up that way. But I think that what, from people that I've interviewed on the Impossible Network, I have had similar backgrounds. What I've noticed is the, the positive impact it's had on dealing with the world that we're living in, making people comfortable comfortable with ambiguity, adaptable to changing environments and the uncertainty of the world that we're living in and the rapid pace of change. I think, when, certainly when I was younger, I, I, I think it had a, didn't have a positive effect, but I think the world that we're living in now, these characteristics, this preparation for uncertainty, ambiguity and change are all very empowering characteristics. So it's interesting that you describe your background as that. I mean, I believe you both had a career in teaching, but I assume that having a career in teaching and also having a love of art requires a deep sense of curiosity and care and interest in, in other people and a spirit of service. From your perspective, Barbara, did you have any early sense of the life direction and the direction that Jackie was going in as a child? Did you have an intuitive sense of what you thought she might end up doing from an early age? Yes. Yes, I think she she's an organizer. She always was, you know, perhaps it was necessity. Perhaps it was just the way she was born. But she grew up organizing, organizing her brothers, helping organize her mother. I'd like their perspective um, on that. Yeah, well, I think that they they still go to her when they need some help. So, so she she very much did have that ability to multitask even when she was young. There's one moment that I remember actually I was thinking about this this morning when even when she was not feeling well and she was home from school and she had the babysitter take her to the library because I had told her that I'd gotten an email and that there was a little new Russian boy joining the class who didn't speak any English. And she asked the babysitter to take her to the library because she needed to get a book about learning Russian. And she then for two days studied this little book and they found one with a tape and I remember she taught us all how to say, hi, my name is Jackie. What's your name? And she, 
she went back to school and I think she must have done such a good job with with those sentences that she had the teachers convinced that she spoke Russian. And I think for about a week, they would call Jackie every time they needed to tell this little boy, Nikolai, something. And so she's, she's a person who who wants to step in and wants to help. And she's always been like that. And and she finds the way to do that. She doesn't just say it. She acts on it. So yeah, I think she's always been like that. You know, there was one particular teacher who tried to teach her class the way she was and, and Jackie, I remember would come home and, you know, there was always, you know, I think she should have done this today, you know, or, you know, it would have been better if she controlled the boys by doing this. And, and she was very young and she was making this commentary. Did you do have to do anything to cultivate her curiosity or did you just set her free and let her run in the world? I think I think that the travel certainly, you know, impacted on that. I think the the moving around and going we spent a lot of time with with Jackie because she was interested. You know, we went to museums and we went to, you know, different cities and she was the one who we would take to the Musée d'Orsay while the boys were doing something else. Not because we didn't want to take the, you know, but she was the one who had the interest. She would find out where we were going and she would say, oh, I'd like to go and see this. And and so she always had, she read a lot, you know, and, and I think that made a very big difference. The, the, she read a lot and, and she wanted to know about the places where we lived from very early on. I remember her standing in front of the Washington Monument and she she would do, yes. I mean, I think I was a teacher. So now that I'm thinking back, yes, I would I would bring along a little book for her and take a picture and say, what did you think about that? You know, yes, I think I did do a lot of that now that I'm thinking about it. it those are the kinds of things that when you have four children, you tend to forget, Mark. But I'm thinking back to her standing in front of different monuments and I would have told her the story about Lincoln and I would have told her the story about, you know, George Washington. But yes, she, and, and I still have all of those little books. So she had little travel books that she kept. And can I add on to what my mom said? Because from my perspective, I think a lot of it was leading by example. Like my mom said, she is a she is a teacher, and that that makes it that yeah she 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 did scavenger hunts and books and all kinds of things like that every single trip that we went on and even if it was a beach holiday we went on you know we'd go visit other places and i think that that really inspired curiosity in me also being you know she grew up very similar to me even more internationally she speaks multiple languages and anytime we went anywhere she figured out a way to communicate with people. And she does it all the time. She's not the kind of person, like she will figure out a way to talk to anybody. And that is a skill that I, she just does it naturally. And I try really hard to be the same because I think it, it's, it, it puts people at ease and it lets you into their lives in a way that you wouldn't otherwise be able to. And, and that, that ability to communicate and even if it's not a skill that I've totally honed yet, it it just it continues to inspire curiosity. Also, I think she has a little bit of ADHD and and that makes us and not that I have a bunch of it, but maybe a touch because I think it it, it makes you want to learn and have your hand in a lot of different things. 
Are there are there any defining memories or moments or experiences from your childhood that do directly relate to where you are today and what you're doing today? Yes. One was when I told my dad when I was young that I really liked art and I wanted to be an artist. And he brought me to Christie's in the city in New York. And we, we walked around the showroom and we saw the art and he he's a banker. And so he, I was, I was 13, I think. And he at that point was like, yes, look at the art. It's beautiful. And this is how you can make money from it. <laughs> and it from that and then he was like and then you can go and do your your masters at Sotheby's in art business so that was the plan from when i was 13 years old yeah it defined the course of of my university my my post secondary education and then i messed up, up his plan a little bit but you know you have to mess it up a little yeah. bit if you're a kid so what was what was school like for the young jackie what were your memories like I mean, obviously, oh. clearly you were a, a, a te- an organizer of the teacher. Yeah, I wouldn't say I was I wouldn't say I was a teacher's pet at all. I kind of I went and I did my thing and I usually thought I did it better than the teacher when I was younger. And wouldn't go down too well with too many teachers, I suspect. No, I think they I, I did unless they were a little bit trying to help me too much. And then those were the teachers that ended <laughs> up helping me the most because that's, you know, those are the ones that knew that I needed it. I'm glad that you recognize that. That makes me very happy to hear that because, yeah, she would butt heads sometimes with some teachers and then later say to me, you know, actually, Miss So-and-so, she was right, you know, uh, and, and yeah. I, I appreciate that you say that now. Yeah. But other than that, I mean, school, I loved school. I, I, I loved school so much. I did not like chemistry or statistics, which I failed multiple times. But other than that, I liked, I loved history. I loved English. I loved the languages. When I went to university and I, I went to a big, uni- I went to McGill University, which is a really big university. Uh, Montreal. Yeah. And frankly, yeah. they don't care if you're there or not. And I, I liked being left alone to just do my own research and put my own thoughts down on paper. And, and then I did my master's and that was a really fun, interesting experience that opened my eyes to a lot of different areas of the art world that I hadn't considered. And then just, you know, for good measure, I got my education degree as well. And now I spend every day in school because I guess I loved it so much. So why didn't you you throw yourself into the art world, given that age 13, you'd already told your father that that's what you were wanting to do. Well, the, and... plan was, the plan was university in art history, master's in art business, and then go work for a specialty art lender, which I did. And I had an internship right after my master's was finished um, in New York for a specialty art lender. And I, I loved it, loved that summer. It was really fun, but being... I had another internship lined up in, in Montreal for a nonprofit arts center. And I kind of had started to put in motion the, the, the way to get me back to that original company in New York. But I really liked the nonprofit art sector. Mm-hmm. And even after having been in, in London and immersed in that art world, I felt it was really exclusive and intimidating. And I, I preferred to be in the nonprofit art sector because I found it was more about accessibility to the arts and, and putting things out into the community that were for the betterment of people and not just for the appreciation of, of you know, your per- private art collection. Do you think that sense of justice and equity and inclusion came from? There's a lot of people, I mean, the art world is 
full of people that see the uh, econ personal economic opportunity of whether it be managing, representing agents of artists, working for auction houses. I've known a few of them myself and mm -hmm. uh, don't really care about the things you just described. Where do you think that came from? That's a good question. I think I think, uh, you know, it's a boring answer because we've said it a bunch, but that going back to traveling my whole life and seeing a lot of different communities and the way different people live and what makes a city or a community feel like a community. And a lot of that has to do with, with public art and culture that's accessible and mm -hmm. not hidden away in museums. I, th I think also, you know, my parents probably would have preferred for me to do something where I was making a little bit more money, but unfortunately they instilled in me a, a sense of wanting to help people and, and, and do so in, in a way that I actually think I was, I could be good at. And for me, the art, art world was my, is kind of my tool. And so that idea of helping create a community and helping give people access to culture that they wouldn't necessarily have access to otherwise, that's, that's become my passion. Mm -hmm. So when you left university and you, you said you did your, got your teaching certificates, what aspect of education and teaching did you move into? Is it teaching art or teaching art history no, or? Uh, I would love to teach art history, but, and I bring it into my classes all the time, but I'm a uh, social studies and an English teacher. I'm probably better at social studies. That's really where my interests lie. And I think you can be an art historian and a social studies teacher, can't you? Yeah, they go hand in hand. Why? Because art tells you about history. It tells, just looking at a piece of art, you can see what, was, what were people's values in society. You can see what people were struggling with. Abstract expressionism came out of a fear of the kind of controlling government after World War II. And mm. there's there's lots of art movements that are associated with political movements wow. as well. Looking at Diego Rivera, the, the exhibition uh, that was on at the Whitney recently, so clearly overtones of the, just the political struggles and economic struggles that people uh, yeah. faced and their race and rights issues Absolutely. at that time. I'm talking, I'm doing in social studies right now, a unit on Canadian history. And we talked on Friday, yesterday, about a Canadian artist who repurposes Nike Air Jordans and makes them into masks, like Pacific Northwest style indigenous masks as a comment on the fetish fetishization of indigenous culture and as a comparison to the fetish, fetishization of Nike and Jordan culture and all of that. So it was a fun way to get the kids interested in, in a topic like Canadian history, which tends to be a little dry. <laughs> Okay, I'd love to see the production sort of techniques of taking old, hopefully they're suitably clean, reused Air Jordans. But anyway, could you, Barbara and Jackie, both being involved in education, but clearly with a love of art, could you give me the backstory and the genesis to the incredible social initiative that you kicked off last year that you called Art on the Avenue? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'll start that but again it, it will end up back to jackie so you know i, I think we went virtual march 13th i'm a, I'm a teacher so we, within you know 48 hours we pivoted to teaching kids on zoom and it was great and I, and and i really you know i think as a school personally we we made seriously good lemonade out of out of the lemons we were given and we you know ended the year 
well, but you know, it was the beginning of, of June. The kids were getting tired of being on Zoom. They were, you know, missing each other and missing their friends. I was certainly missing, you know, the camaraderie that you have in, in a school setting and seeing people every day. And like Jackie mentioned, I'm a people person and I, I was feeling very, very much isolated with no prospect of seeing the kids at school, but even worse, no prospect of seeing my own kids. I would run, you know, running is, is a little bit of a therapy and, and on the way back, I would run up Columbus Avenue and every day I would see another store boarded up, another store closed, more paper in the windows, more for rent signs. And I just kept thinking to myself, well, what's it going to be like next fall? Is it going to be better? No, it's going to be worse. People are going to start to lose their jobs. More of these are going to close. I said, there has to be something something hopeful that you can look at, that you can walk by. There has to be something that I can do about this. And I think the project, the the idea of a project maybe was something that I was missing a little bit from not being in school. And and it started to kind of take take shape. I happened to go home and look down at my phone and, and see Jackie's work Instagram. The Fernie Arts Council had just put some artwork in some small mainstream windows, Main Street, because it's a small, small town. And I said, wow, that looks so nice, Jackie. What is that? What are you doing? And she said, well, you know, the, the art station's closed. We were supposed to have a gallery show. So instead of doing that, you know, we asked the property owners if we could put the, the pieces in there. And you know, mom, it's really great because people walk by it and they talk about it. And actually the owners are really happy because they're getting more calls about the space. So I said, you know, that's what I need to do here. That's what we're going to do on Columbus Avenue, Jackie. What do you think? What do you think? And sweet as can be, like I said, five times she's ever argued with me. She said, sure, you know, great idea. And I think she was just kind of, you know, she knew the state of my mind at that point. And she was just playing along, right, Jackie? For, for until she realized that I was not going to let it go. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. And I figured that nothing was going to come of it, but, you know, go ahead and, and wear yourself out trying, but she got the right people in touch and, and the right people to listen to her. And that's really all we need at the end of the day is we just kind of need to get in front of people. And at that point we won't stop until in the meeting they've, they're convinced. Right. So, so that was, it was just getting your foot in the door. That was the, the really, really difficult part. And she, you know, Mark, people will listen to good ideas. I mean, you know, and it's a good idea. There's really not very much that's negative about it because it's, it's helpful to, to the community as a whole. It's helpful to the artists. We are attempting to help the property owners as well. So where is the loss? We are eliminating all the possible barriers or, or what they might perceive as obstacles. When I say they, I mean, you know, the property owners, because that's the biggest hurdle in, in this project is to get the space. So, you know, we managed to just talk to enough people at the right time, I think the timing was very was crucial to to the success of Art on the Ave's first iteration. I think the timing. People were last summer. They were tired of bad news, and this was somebody trying to do something good. And I think that there was a little bit more goodwill than I might have found six months prior. So, could, for anyone that hasn't looked at the website or understands exactly what the specifics are 
Can you just explain exactly what Art in the Avenue, the idea was? Sure. And how to use those, those stores? Yes, exactly. The idea was to use the window space, not not to board anything up necessarily and and paint over that which is is fine but to keep the the space open so that potentially people might see inside and say oh that's an interesting space but to fill it with something beautiful to fill it with something hopeful and so we put out a call to art and the the call asked for something that spoke to the theme of healing and we were only looking for vacant spaces at that point and we kind of what was different i think about this idea because it's not a a a novel concept it's been done but we really felt like the story was important i think that's that's to me storytelling is everything and to me hearing a person's voice is is very impactful and as someone who yes appreciates art but is sometimes intimidated by the idea of walking into those galleries that someone would speak to me about their piece from the sidewalk which is my place of comfort that's what was going to make the difference to me and i wanted that kind of an immersive experience. You're not just going to walk by this piece. You're going to stop for a second and see what, what, or hear what the artist has to say about it. Maybe it'll interest you. Maybe it doesn't. And you walk on, but the opportunity to hear a voice that went with that piece to me was, was very important. And so that's what it was. It was meant to be an immersive gallery walk that could either be enjoyed, you know, just as a one-off or you could go and walk the entire thing. But I saw a gallery. I saw a gallery. I was quite specific about the blocks that it needed to be on because it had to feel intimate enough that you could move from one space to the other. And so that that's what the idea was. Okay. We are very interested in the concept and the experience of serendipity. Jackie, your focus on art business and your the way you expressed your interest not being about the profiteering and working at the high end, but more about representation and democratization of art, that sort of social and in, interest in social impact through art seems to have led you to perfectly to that point with Art on the Avenue. And as your mother describes, it sounds like it's a perfect expression of democracy and art by being on the sidewalk, the pavement, as we say in the UK. Could you just talk about your perspective and where, what the power, the power of this as, a, as an initiative, obviously having started this one on this one avenue in New York, what, where does it, what's the positive benefit both from your perspective as a as a person that's done your master's in art business, the opportunity both for artists, for the community, and generally for business at large. Well, it's like you just said, Mark, that, that Art on the Ave has that ability to bring art to a street level. And, and in that way, it gets, it gives exposure to artists to two whole new demographics of people, not people that are going out of their way to look for art, to purchase art, but more people that are going about their daily routine and and the art ends up becoming part of the fabric of their daily routine. And at, at some point, it 
they need it. They need it to be part of their routine forever, right? So that's, I think, how a lot of those sales happened was not because it was people that were art collectors that were looking for art. It was people that the art really spoke to them. And that's, I don't know that we we set out with that intention, but that's definitely become a really important thing of an important aspect of art on the Ave now as we look towards new exhibitions. How important is the theme? I mean, you, you mentioned, Barbara, you had the theme of, of healing. So important. It has to do with site specificity as well as the time. So the theme, the art of healing, we felt it was a time in New York that needed to see healing. It needed to see artists that had reacted to the events of the past year. And we wanted we wanted pieces that spoke to to a way forward, especially in a time when New York was so dismal and and not really seeing the light at the end of the tunnel at that point. And this next exhibition, the theme is awakening because, you know, we're going into spring. We're hopefully going into a new, more positive chapter of this, of this COVID pandemic. And we wanted to bring something to the, to the West Village that was offering that idea of a rebirth or a awakening of sorts in a lot of senses and it also the theme also always has to do with i think the neighborhood that we're in or it's going it's becoming more and more important to the neighborhood that we're in and so the west village has its roots in in bohemia and and being an artist's you know hub and it's kind of moved away from that and so when we thought about awakening we also thought of it in the sense of like a, a self-realization or a reflection on yourself and we're hoping that you know it might inspire the the west village kind of a rebirth of that artistic as opposed to the the more commercial atmosphere that it's taken on over the last few years i think as ib educators both well jackie's been to ib schools one of the things that that we work on a lot is this idea of the of of a concept rather than a theme even something that's open open to interpretation and i think that that's important also when you're dealing with art and artists is to provide this thing that is timeless that is is universal it can suit anybody but it's also it can be interpreted in different ways and that's what we're we find we find such a range of incredible art you know you might think of awakening and and you might specify you know something about a season and you would get very, you know, one dimensional ideas. But I think that that the theme becomes very important also in that aspect that if you keep it wide and you keep it open, you end up with different mediums and different visions of what what that actually means. And, and that creates broad interest because you never know. You just never know what is going to catch someone's eye on the street. And that it also it also helps our artistic direction as well whenever we're making decisions regarding art on the app with whether it's with our curatorial team or even just things like branding and social media it's always helpful to refer back to that essential question that essential concept that we are basing the exhibition on i think it, it keeps us focused what's been the reaction of the artists themselves to this because it must be deemed or 
considered quite a novel application of... No, you speak to that because you deal with them. Well, I so Jackie does a lot of the back work with the artists and the preliminary work with the artists, which is a, a very much a, gri- a nitty gritty process. And we very much have streamlined it. I think that that's what we're good at because that's our role anyway. We streamline things. And, and so the process is probably something that is not what they're used to. We don't extend deadlines. We don't mess with missed appointments. We are very strict actually with the artists. But... On the other hand, Mark, we are not asking for a fee to submit, which is normally what they face when they submit to anything. And nor we do we take a single penny of their sale. So that is unheard of, I think, in New York. And they appreciate that. And not only do we do that, But we try to involve the artist in so many different ways throughout the three-month exhibition. So we invite the artists out so that if we're doing a big walk, they would be out in front of their piece and speaking to their piece. And I've enjoyed many walks when we stop and we talk to the artist and then the artist follows us as we go on the walk to the next artist. So we invite them to do webinars with that, with us. We invite them to do lessons with us. If we're doing a Zoom lesson with a group of kids, I've had the artists in there with the Zoom so it's it's not just we're taking this piece and we'll see you later there's a real really there's a there's a bigger connection and i can tell you that the most beautiful time for me in the entire exhibit and it should have been the opposite was the closing the last day because i never saw so many emotional meetings, encounters and partings so the owner would come and the artists would come and they would pick up the piece and they would exchange the piece. Some of them brought champagne and they toasted. They would then, I mean, it was really, it was a lovely moment. So the, I think that they are very appreciative to be mm-hmm. honest with you. And e- I, I think get many emails. I think they're shell shocked at the beginning because like my mom said, it is a, a streamlined, we, you, maybe we should give ourselves longer deadlines but we haven't and and it very much is we are running towards installation and when we pick the artists they kind of have to run with us or it becomes too difficult but i think the ones that do really embrace the nature of the project find have found it to be super rewarding for them so for the 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 most recent submission for the awakening for the west village how many submissions did you get about 150 Wow. And how do you curate and decide which ones are worthy of We're still learning being the exhibited? We're still learning the curatorial process, but we've, you know, we're not curators and we, we recognize that we, we know where our strengths are and we know where, you know, we don't have the expertise. And so each exhibition we've brought on a professional curator. And this time we're working with two curators in Davis Ellie and Norma Krieger, and they, they work in partnership and, and we, we meet every week. And we met every week leading up to the final selection period. And we, they knew the theme and we went through all of the submissions and they i came with a set of artists that i thought best represented the theme and kind of who we were hoping to give that extra exposure to and they came with their list and then we just went through bit by bit and it ended up it was a few hour conversation selection period where we really and then i come in at the end 
I come in at the end and I say, so I haven't looked and I haven't seen, but this is what I've been telling the donors. This is what I've been telling the people who are sponsoring us, that we are an organization that spotlights the work of underrepresented artists. And that's what I want to see here. And so then they go through the selection and, you know, we, we make some decisions sometimes, don't we? Yeah, it's definitely, there's a balance that needs to be struck between representation as far as in the art world, but also in society in general, and then quality of work. So we want, you know, we don't, we want good art because we want to honor the artists that have been selected, but, but it's very important that we, you know, we give space to those that, that need a little bit extra space. I I know a number of people in the city and with love of art, strong sense of their civic duty and social responsibility. They've done nothing. I mean, you just if you have to even look at some of the gallery owners, you could say, you know, this could have been done by anyone, but why you? Because we did it. Because we've, and through this whole process, we've met a lot of people, like you said, that love the art and feel a sense of social responsibility and... And want to help. And want to help. They want to help, but... They want to have a lot of talks on Zoom about helping and we are the, we do things. We're... That's a different mark. That's the difference, Mark. I'm sorry. You know, I've met, I'm going to be 100% honest with you. I am shocked. I am shocked. I think that I think teachers work hard. We're used to working hard. And then we go home and we work hard some more. And I'm pretty amazed at what can be done even after school and after hours. A lot, a lot can be done. But the more you talk about it, and the more you bring in people who might be able to help, and the more you talk about you know, this person who has so much influence and this person who can do this, the less you're actually doing the work, Mark, and mm. then it doesn't happen. Yeah. That's inter- interesting. When I first uh, spoke with Jackie, she talked about your tenacity of, to getting things done. I mean, where, where, I mean, I, fine. I mean, it, it, I know it probably goes to a certain degree with the hard work and the with being a teacher, but there must be something inside you where it comes from and the, the, that's made you just so resolute to push through these barriers. I mean, you must have faced barriers and rejection. It couldn't have just all been plain sailing from the moment you had the idea. Oh, no, there were loads of obstacles. I think that, let, let's, one of the very first things I think, and it's important to talk about, is the fact that I really didn't know and neither did Jackie. Jackie probably more so than I did, but I certainly didn't know all the things that I didn't know. And so that makes it easier, doesn't it? Because you'll face that daily obstacle. But I'm used to facing daily obstacles. I have four children. I move all the time. I teach in a, in a world where kids don't want to learn. Those are things that I deal with. And so a daily obstacle to me is not an obstacle. It's just, okay, this is today. And this is what I'm going to do about it. And tomorrow is a new day. So not knowing what the road ahead actually was, was a huge bonus and a huge help to us. And now that we do know, actually, we, we, 
we can continue because we have some answers. So when people might question us or might say, well, you know, you know, what are you going to do about this? I know what I can do about that. So, so I think that partly it was the fact that I didn't quite know what I was getting myself into and I just plowed ahead. And I think that that's what I do a lot in life. I, I used to tell my kids, this was part of my uh, parenting philosophy that many of my friends have found interesting and my mother-in-law too my philosophy was go ahead and do it and if you weren't allowed you're gonna know about it because you'll get yelled at you'll get in trouble but stop asking me if you're allowed what what was it jackie assume you're allowed until further notice yeah and that's kind of my philosophy on life i'm gonna assume that it's okay because I'm not going to go out there and try to do something that's going to hurt anybody. I'm not going to go out there and try to do something that's wrong. If I'm doing something, it's because I believe in it and I believe that it's right. And I believe that someone's going to benefit from it. So I'm going to assume that it's okay. And if it's not, I'll say sorry later. That's my philosophy. And it's gotten me, I don't know, maybe it'll get me in trouble at some point, but so far so good. Okay. So for people in the West Village, what, what do they look out for and where do they look out for the, the gallery space? And when? You know better than me, Mom, you say. Yeah, so I, I guess our focal point really, and maybe the starting point, if you actually wanted to do a full walk, would be the Lortel Theatre, the Lucille Lortel Theatre on mm -hmm. Christopher, Christopher Street. Street. And how excited were we when we found out when when George actually agreed to letting us use it I mean I kind of pitched it and I asked and I was not sure and they jumped on it and they loved it and it's part of what they do and since they can't have their own performances they absolutely wanted to engage with the artistic world in any way that they could and so that's going to be really our it's going to have four um, significant pieces behind the doors and then it's going to be our information center there's going to be a map there's going to be the story of Lucille Lortel um, across the street we were very fortunate to get a beautiful space 120 Christopher we've got one two three four different gallery stops on Hudson we have one on Perry and then we go to Bleecker where we have we have one two three four stops on Bleecker and then we head down towards West 4th where we have again two wonderful spaces so it's a meander you know whereas Columbus Avenue was really a gallery straight walk up mm -hmm. and down this is more of a West Village wander oh, that's like wonderful that wander. yeah that's brilliant and then what what about if people want to buy the art what's the what's the deal there we, we got QR codes that go with each piece of art and they're, they're really important because any passerby that sees a piece of art that they like can scan the QR code and they have an opportunity there to listen to the artist's statement. But then there are like two customizable buttons and one of them will go directly to the artist's page on our website where they'll be able to contact the artist directly and start conversations about a potential sale that way. As well, you can always just go to our website now and we have all of the artists on there already with all of their information to reach out to them. And what about scaling this? I mean, obviously, you've, you're moving this beyond Amsterdam Avenue to the West Village. 
or Columbus Avenue. I mean, do you see this as being scalable across the city or to other cities? I think I think we had a, we had a lot of interest. We had a lot of different business improvement districts that that asked to have meetings or you know, and so we we have engaged in talks with the Downtown Alliance. We are we are talking also to Midtown East. So yeah, I think that it's something that's interesting to different different communities and different neighborhoods. And I think it is, I think the issue of vacant storefronts is not gonna be going away for a little while. And I think that the fact that we're not just kind of going in there for a week or an event, but we're actually staying for a while and that part of our mission is to try to also engage the neighboring businesses and having them participate, bringing out, you know, groups of people. I think that is of interest to people. So I, I think that that it will appear in different places. You know, what's really interesting, Mark, one group of people who actually live in a co-op here on the Upper West Side reached out to us and they said, we'd like to do art on the Ave, you know, in our building because we have this big retail space and we met with them and we had wonderful talk with a group of them and we said you know it's not necessarily an art on the ad that you need because it seems like you have a community of artists already and so you know we're more about a broader we want to put out a call to different artists but if you already have artists in the building then we you know we talked through some of the things that we challenges that we had so and you know what i'm so excited to see that they've done it they are going ahead and they're putting it on so you know i think that it's it's an idea using these storefronts for something else for something artistic in the interim until people get creative about what they're going to do with them and they will get creative about what to do with them you know that's what people do why not use the space for something like this we've all witnessed Certainly here in New York, as the stores shuttered and the uh, the protests for the look for the murder of George Floyd and the other injustice, social and racial injustices that occurred last year, led to artists and graffiti artists adorning these shuttered spaces and the plywood boarded windows with art, and then it disappeared. I think people recognise just the the power of expression and what it can do to the feeling of a community that takes away the sort of the anodyne gentrification that had happened across the city and and you'd you've said i think you say on your site that it speaks to issues that resonate with different audiences for different reasons the artists who deserve exposure the businesses that need support the residents that need to feel confident in their community in their and, and in their city Having a presence when it's there, it does change the, the not just the fabric, but the, the composition of what a neighbourhood is. And if it feels to me like it's something that as retail is going to change, I don't think retail is ever going to go back to the way it was before. And I think if people, with people when you speak to people like Emily from Far, Far Place, they're reimagining what the retail experience is. I just wonder if what you're doing is starting something that might change forever the the to be this um, inflection point or this this Venn diagram between artists business and the community and we're all familiar with going into these pristine galleries in Chelsea but 
What this does is it creates a new experience for art before a reinterpretation of art in the city. You know, you think about what art was and the role of artists and artists and artist communities in Soho and even in the West Village in the 60s, 70s and 80s. What you're doing, I think, could could just be the beginning of something completely radical. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I was just asked a very similar question uh, a couple of days ago, and I... I do, I think it is the beginning of something, a way that cities will be planned, maybe not planned from from their inception, but like you said, I don't think retail is going to come back in the same way. I think online shopping is forever going to change what going into a store means for people and those spaces aren't going to go away. So people do need to find a new way to make use of them. Yeah, I don't think retail is coming back. And I do think that the composition of the city is going to change. And I think that people are going to appreciate public art more and art's ability to, we, we say it all the time, to create a sense of confidence in a neighborhood. And, you know, you don't want to stare at empty spaces. So why not mm-hmm. have, fill that space with art? Mark, there were so many people who would come across the street. So when the exhibit's on, I pretty much live at the exhibit. So they would come across the street and they would tell me, you know, my daughter's favorite one is this one. Or um, I come down here all the time now. I love to be down here drinking my coffee. There were so many people who told me that they'd never bought a piece of art. And they they came and and they brought their friends and then they brought their parents because they had never spent that much money on a piece of art and they were so afraid of it and Mm -hmm. and but they loved it so much and to me that was uh, like i think we mentioned it before to me that was such a telling outcome that was never something that i imagined to be to to be a thing and and it, it to me it was almost the most important thing the fact that so many people i realized actually are excited about art but are afraid of the scene that surrounds it i found that really interesting and you know what and i i feel like that's one of my big drivers now is and it's it's new is that I want people walking by, you know what, we're going to dinner. And if I happen to cross a piece, oh, this is interesting. And the next day I go buy it with a cup of coffee and I look at it in the morning. Bringing that art into the neighborhood makes a connection. It bridges, you know, the world of art, the world of artists to to people who are going to an office somewhere else or people who are on a school run or, you know, it, it all kind of, melds together in a way that actually isn't the way it's been up until now, where you think of art, either you're buying it in the TJ Maxx basement just because you need something on the on the wall, or it's this other thing that has to come from a major gallery or from a an auction house, which is extremely scary. And there are all these buyers and there's all this market that is just afraid of the process, that is just afraid of, of making a mistake. And where is the mistake? Do you love it? Do you, you know, is it less worthy because it's not in a gallery with only one other piece? Yeah, it's interesting. If so, people want to follow you and find out more, or even help you. 
Where do they go? Our website, artontheavenyc.com, mm-hmm. or they can follow us on Instagram at artontheavenyc. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter. And, and yeah, we're always, we're always fundraising and um, looking to expand our community as well. Uh-huh. And hopefully internationally. Um, can we get to the quick fire questions? Yeah. Hopefully. Okay. All right. What principles do you stand by? Mutual respect. That's a good one. K- kindness. The hard choices you've had to make that might have been tough at the time, but did Both turn out to be. the same one. Cancelling oh. ja- Jackie's wedding this summer. You did it today. Oh, wow. But how do you know it turned out to be the right decision? Well, we didn't say it was a good, good decision. We said it was a hard decision. <laughs> Difficult decision. Wrestled with it this whole year. My I've, husband and I already got married. We'll do a celebration a different time. And this is, it, it will allow us to be able to see more of our family and friends this summer than we've been able to see this past year. And that's really what's important to us. Right Mark, now. remember, Mark, remember at the very beginning when I told you about how she could reason and you could reason with her and she could see things logically. That's unusual. Yeah. Okay. Uh, there's one question I, I thought about before we started. I mean, it's all over Clubhouse and the internet at the moment is obviously NFTs and artists. Mm-hmm. Has any, have any of the artists been talking about that? No, we're no. not in that game. None of You're our not. artists are, are thinking about NFTs, that's for sure. I think because of, of the kind of artists that we are targeting, emerging artists, underrepresented artists, they're not, they're not thinking about cryptocurrency. Yeah. You know, I don't okay. think anybody except the major, major auction houses and, and major collectors are even thinking about cryptocurrency right now. Okay. I had to ask. I don't think my mom knew what NFT was. Did you, mom? No, I absolutely knew what an NFT was. And actually, Mark, I've got myself locked out of Coinbase. Do you know my biggest... I, I don't regret... Get back in. I don't regret many things. But in 2017, I went to buy some Coinbase and Ethereum at the same time. And I thought it had gone through. And then I had to do some validation. And I never saw the email. By the time I got to about a year later, it was too late. Prices had gone up. Oh. Uh, There you go. Anyway, where do you go to discover new ideas? They just come to me. (laughs) They do. I've got lots of ideas. For me, a lot of my ideas come from just talking. Uh, talking, talking, talking without really knowing where the end of my sentence is going. But I, my students will vouch for me that often I'm giving them a lecture or we're talking about something and halfway through, I've come up with something great about a new project that we're going to do. And I've already explained it all to them. And by the time I'm done, I forgot what I was talking about originally. It's rapid fire. We don't need explanations. Apart from the problem and the work you're doing with Art in the Avenue, what one problem needs solving? Climate change. Climate change. You have the opportunity to have four people from history. They might be dead. They might be, you know, the, the news at the moment that you could invite around to dinner to help you create that better future. Who would they be? Michelle Obama one. Uh, Robert Kennedy. I don't know. I thought about this one this morning and I couldn't. I don't know why. I guess I don't dwell on the. I don't know. I thought of Michelle Obama and I thought of Robert Kennedy. And I've just played this game with my... We actually had this activity at, at, mm. at school. I have one. Charles Montgomery. 
not from history, but he's a he's an author and he um, writes about urban planning and creating cities to improve citizens' quality of life. I would have him. Wow. And then probably one of those ancient Romans that created- Seneca. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good dinner party. Are there any questions that, that no one asks? Or a question that no one asks that you wish they would? Yeah, How are no. you? You know, it's, how are you? Mm-hmm. But actually be listening. Yeah, that'd be nice. Ah, that's actually a very good one. Yeah. I like that. Okay. And the reason we ask it, we don't ask what the answer is. We always say it because we say the next person that interviews you should ask that question. So oh, that's good. Go. That's good. Yeah. And it's interesting, some of the questions that people wish that people would ask. So we always hope that when someone gets them on their podcast, they get asked it. They do the research. But you should really listen next I know. Time. Exactly. <laughs> well, I think I would probably guess the answer to this one. Who's made you reevaluate yourself? My children every day. And my students. Mm-hmm. My students. Yeah. They, when you have a bunch of kids that look up to you I don't maybe this is maybe for me mom because it's my first year teaching and I'm kind of young but to have so many teenagers that are so impressionable look up to you it it makes you really think about what kind of an example you want to be for them if a couple of years ago I can imagine someone had said to you and described art in the avenue you probably might have said or someone might have said forget it that's impossible you'll never do that not in New York not with landlords Vacant spaces, forget it. So if someone came to you now and with advice, has got a goal, a big ambition, um, a dream that's been told, forget it, it's not possible, what would your advice be to them? Just think about the next, the next step that you need to accomplish and just focus on that next step. And then you get to the next one after that. And then you, you deal with the problems as they come. Okay. I would say make sure you can support yourself somehow and then go for whatever you love to do. Good advice. And we're coming out of lockdown, we hope, and a third wave. And you get to go deliver, do a, a karaoke bar, maskless. What's your go-to karaoke song? No, I, 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 I won't. <laughs> yeah. I who's, that, who's that by? I, I, I don't sing, I won't do it, but I will cheer for anybody who does. So we, we cheer on my dad. Yes, okay. he loves karaoke. Okay. And his karaoke song? His karaoke song is Good Lovin'. Or um, Pretty Woman. Pretty Woman. And mine is I Think We're Alone Now by Tiffany. Ah, classic. Um, any recent Netflix film or series or Apple TV, Amazon that you've seen that you think people should watch? It's a Sin on Amazon Prime. Okay. Wonderful. It's about the AIDS, the AIDS epidemic in the 80s in London. Too busy Good. harassing landlords to watch. <laughs> Good, I like to hear that. And we offer listeners a book that um, if they come up with a good comment in the comment section oh, Instagram or on the website. One. So what's that book we should be offering? A Prayer for Owen Meany. That's a good one. Okay. Jackie? Mine is A Little Life. Don't know that. That's so good. And The Outsiders. I love The Outsiders. Every year when I teach it, it's as if I've never mm. taught it before. Okay, we've got three good ones there. And then final question, who should we interview next? Lance Johnson. And who is Lance Johnson? He's an oh. artist. Okay. 
I say are, he's not really one of our artists, but I think, I feel that when, once they've been in an exhibit with us, then, you know, we kind of, we want to look out for them forever. Okay. All right then. Well, once this goes live, we'll reach out to you for an introduction to Lance Johnson. Thank All right. you, Mark. Well, I just, uh, yeah, I just thank you and acknowledge you for the amazing work that you're doing and the selfless pursuit of social impact and helping neighborhoods become resurgent and resilient and the impact you're having on these artists' lives and the community are exposed to this amazing art and the and reimagining the experience of what a neighborhood is. I think it's, it's, it's just uh, an incredible example of tenacity, vision, and a vigorous pursuit of doing what's right and, and taking an idea from an, a thought all the way through to completion. And I think it's if more people followed your path, cities would definitely be stronger and more resilient. And, and just, yeah, more power to you. So thank you very much. And thank you for this opportunity. And thanks, well, thanks for everything you're doing with Back the Neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, hopefully this, our conversations will continue and there'll be other ways, yeah, to collaborate or do it. Landlord has a residential building that has commercial space at the bottom that is unrented for a certain number of months, then they have to do something good for, it doesn't have to be art on the app, but they have to Where? do something with their space. Which building? Any building. Any building that has apartments up top, but commercial space at the bottom, if it's vacant for a long time, uh, they're obligated to do something good with that space until it's leased. Wouldn't okay. that be wonderful? Yeah, that's a great idea. Vancouver does lots of stuff like that. Where if I, a new you know, they've tried that, Jackie. They've tried to actually legislate that out in the Hamptons, for example. Mark, I don't know if you know mm. this, but no. they actually passed a bylaw out in Southampton telling people, telling landlords, if you have an unoccupied retail space, you must curate it. You must put art in it, and we will provide you with the art. We will install the art for you. You must do this by law or face a fine. Do you know how many? of those landlords and there are over 60 of them have taken them up four and the others have preferred to be fined it was actually in the press that's terrible yeah yeah wow damning indictment on individuals on on the reputation landlords have I mean, anyway that, that... i have to tell you there's another element when i actually am able to speak to the property owner mm -hmm. i i get the property I get property. So they listen. It's just that I can't get to the property owner. Why is that? Because there are so many barriers. And layers. Yes, so many layers. And the main, main layer and the biggest obstacle is the real estate agent who has absolutely no interest, none in having this happen. And the only way I've managed to convince some of the real estate agents is by actually trading them a clickable link on my QR code. So our landing page QR code has a link that says, view this property. Uh, and then they see, okay, maybe, maybe this is, this makes, there's something in it for me. Because the question that we get asked all the time is, What's in it for me? I'm so sorry. I 
Okay. All right. Mark, it was lovely. I loved your Great. questions. I'm going to actually use those in class if that's okay with you. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Okay. That's all for this week, folks. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, rate, recommend, or review, depending on where you listen. And if you have someone you'd like us to interview, just DM us on Instagram at The Impossible Network or email us at info at theimpossiblenetwork.com. And please give our other podcast, The Raw Hospitality Show, a listen. They are both Fabrica Collective Productions. See you next time.